Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Lots of talk about the Fed, about the economy, about China, about European natural gas. But how much really changed? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on the Fed and getting the economy back on track. I think Jay Powell said things that, to be blunt, were analytically indefensible. And Ken Jacobs of Lazard on how a changing Supreme Court could affect his business. You have an industry like insurance, which has 50 different regulators in 50 different states. It was an extravaganza of talk and data this week, with President Biden finally having that talk with China's President Xi. President Xi actually emphasizing to President Biden that they should coordinate on macroeconomic policies, according to the Chinese foreign minister readout. The EU energy commissioner laying out plans to deal with further natural gas cuts from Russia. We will start saving gas now, and that uh, we have a blueprint to act together in a coordinated way if the situation worsens. Congress moved that CHIPS bill towards the president's desk, and to top it off, Senators Schumer and Manchin tried to pull a rabbit out of the hat with a surprise deal on climate and deficit reduction. This bill is far from perfect. It's a compromise. But it is, that's often how progress is made. And of course, the big one. The Fed setting a new funds rate, and Chair Powell saying they'll keep tightening. And we're strongly committed to returning inflation to our 2% objective. As the stance of monetary policy tightens further, it likely will become appropriate to slow the pace of increases. But we shouldn't expect a lot more of that forward guidance. We think it's time to, to, to just go to a meeting-by-meeting meeting basis and, and not provide the kind of clear guidance that we had provided on the, on the way to neutral. 
And if the Fed thought it would have an easy time of it, the numbers kept coming in this week, making it more complicated, with GDP down for a second straight quarter on Thursday. And then on Friday, personal consumption and employment cost index numbers coming in higher than expected, showing that inflation is not close to done with us yet. And the markets? Well, they pretty much took it all in stride, with the S&P 500 up almost 4.3% for the week, ending the month with its best performance since November of 2020. And the NASDAQ posted even higher weekly gains up some 4.7%, while bond yields remain subdued, with the 10-year yield ending the week at 2.65, giving up nearly 35 basis points. To help us sort through all of this, we welcome now Rebecca Patterson, Bridgewater Chief Investment Strategist, and Sarah Ketterer, CEO of Causeway Capital. So welcome both of you back to Wall Street again. Rebecca, let me start with you and what the Fed has in front of it. What is it trying to do? The Fed is trying to get Goldilocks, and that means it wants to get inflation back down as fast as it can towards its 2% target without engineering a recession. And the market is giving it the benefit of the doubt. If you look at what's discounted into markets today, it is basically 2.5% inflation in, in just over a year and only a moderate slowdown in growth. And I think it's going to be almost impossible for the Fed to get everything it wants here. The porridge is going to be too hot or too cold. Either inflation will end up running much higher than the Fed's target and they risk losing their credibility, or if they're serious about getting inflation down, especially from the current high levels, it's going to require more, tar uh, more tightening, which we think is going to engineer a deeper recession. And that's what we're focused on. We think that within six to nine months, we're going to be looking at U.S. GDP that's negative two, negative three percent. So, Sarah, where are you on this? Because there felt like a tension this week between the markets, the futures markets on the one hand, saying exactly what Rebecca just said, and economists on the other hand saying, you know what, we got to really jack up the rates a lot to get inflation under control. Which side are you on? More skeptical side. I think that's how we are as value managers, always want to have it proven to us. But, but note that we've had so much liquidity created, $4 trillion of, of enlargement to the Fed's balance sheet since the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020. That's a lot of liquidity, and it's still there. The Fed only just started to reduce, go into it from a quantitative easing to quantitative tightening starting June 1 of this year. And it's just beginning, and it'll go from $30 billion a month and then bump that up to to $60 billion a month uh, and letting those bonds roll off. That, again, starts to compress bank reserves. This will take it's quite going to be quite lagged in its effect so financial conditions will just tighten due to that reason alone and we don't think markets anticipate that at all and I think just building, Sarah, on your point, it's it's important to remember that the markets are really looking at um, the rates. They're not thinking as much about quantitative tightening or the roll-off of the Fed's balance sheet, which is on autopilot. That's going to keep going. And so we don't have the Fed buying bonds. We don't have banks buying bonds anymore. And so we've seen bond yields come down in the last couple of weeks. But how much further can they come down without retail investors, institutional investors moving out of equity? into bonds. I think what we've seen historically is when stocks go down, bonds rally, and you get that diversification. We've had that for the last few weeks. We didn't have it for the first half of the year. I don't think we can count on that as we get QT continuing, quantitative tightening continuing. Bond yields may come down, but it's going to be a lot harder for them to do that in this environment where the Fed's created a liquidity hole. It's taking liquidity out, and it's not as clear today who's going to fill that, who's going to supply the demand to keep bond yields going further down. So let me pursue that liquidity <laughs> issue a little bit, Sarah, because you mentioned yeah. it, the lack of liquidity. Uh, that really makes
makes the markets, as I understand it, much more volatile. Uh, so what does that do to an investor? How do you know, do you have a GPS at this point, given where we are? The key is to have a low entry price because you've got to have that margin of safety. And what this will mean, if, if massive increases in liquidity, and again, this wasn't just the Fed. Central banks globally were all at this, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan. And as they take all in unison, take liquidity out of the system, what pushed up market multiples, what made valuations expand, what made investors indifferent to valuation, it'll be just the opposite. And we've already seen that start because some of the hardest hit stocks globally, including in the U.S. market, have been had the most bloated valuations. Okay, Sarah Ketter and Rebecca Patterson will stay with us as we take a look at earnings. It was a big earnings week as well for Wall Street. And that's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
About today, there could be little argument. Corporations reported their worst profit decline in 29 years. Revised Commerce Department figures for the first quarter showed that both the economy's downturn and the pressures of inflation were worse than previously reported. And international speculators began dumping dollars and acquiring gold with a fervor not seen for quite some time. That was the way things looked to Louis Ruckheiser on Wall Street Week back in 1975 when we were coming out of a recession. Today we may have inflation, but we haven't really seen a downturn in corporate profits, at least yet, much less a weaker dollar. We've seen just the reverse, in fact. Rebecca Patterson of Bridgewater and Sarah Ketterer of Causeway Capital have stayed with us. So, Sarah, let me go to you on the equities question. We had a lot of earnings out this week. They went both ways, but I think sort of overall earnings came in pretty well so far. They have, and I think both Rebecca and I have commented on the, um, what's happened in the it, the past isn't necessarily reflective of the future. In other words, there are so many challenges ahead in a persistent inflationary environment for companies in terms of cost increases, not to mention a consumer that's deliberately being reined in, that um, it, this just may be a really tough next several quarters of reporting. How tough? Hard to say, but, but unlikely to be buoyant, and that's to the point that um, we've seen multiple deratings. Now we may very well see earnings fall too. And that's typically what happens in market pullbacks. Both multiples and earnings fall. And that, again, is a, a phenomena that will likely occur globally. So, Rebecca, you have a little bit of money at Bridgewater that you have to put to work every once in a while. Uh, what about the question, particularly of debt versus uh, equity? You mentioned before the question of when stocks are attractive. We had that Bank of America fund manager's report coming out saying, look, you're better off right now going into bonds. We, we don't see bonds as, as attractive at this point um, in the U.S., but also in places like Europe. Um, we, you know, with the Fed still tightening, with the Fed demand for bonds now gone, it's going the other way. Banks were huge buyers of bonds last year. They're gone. We think there's going to be a greater challenge for demand to meet supply there. Um, but there was, a, there was another great point uh, just made when we were referencing 1975 there, which was this fall in the dollar and this move into gold. And and it's so interesting to compare what was happening then versus now. Uh, and, and back then, we saw the dollar fall in part because people thought that inflation expectations were unanchored and high inflation was going to undermine the value of currency. And as you just said, it's the opposite right now. We've seen a strong dollar as the U.S. has looked like the nicest house in a bad neighborhood. What, what I would say, though, as we think about earnings and equities and bonds and people's portfolios, is that we're in a world that's so different from the last decade when it comes to currency markets. Volatility is picking up, and as we have inflation surprises, monetary policy surprises, and a huge cone of uncertainty, we should expect that FX volatility to continue. And it flows through to companies, I think, two big ways. One, just if the companies themselves are hedging that risk or not. So we are seeing multinationals underperforming more domestic companies by wide margins just year to date. We think that is likely to continue as these kind of relatively wild moves continue in currencies. And then more broadly, if you're thinking about your portfolio, what currency are you denominated in? What currency risk are you taking? And it can make a very big difference to your performance. I mean, just year to date, if you think about if you hedged a foreign currency equity or didn't hedge, it could be the difference in 10 percentage points in performance mm. for those stocks. And we think that's going to continue and possibly escalate. So I would just say as we think about equities, we think about bonds and earnings, um, I would also make sure not to ignore currencies as part of that equation for your total return. So Sarah, take all that and put it together. I, I think 
think you're somebody who's really look at a particular kind of value investor, you look for good value in terms of low valuations, buying at the bottom, moving up with it. What's attractive to you right now? I, the go where the currencies have been the weakest, where there's potential for a a return to some sort of more normal currency valuation, and the euro might be a good place to start. The euro's off about 12% versus the dollar year to date, and uh, maybe 15 over the last 12 months. So yes, it's on sale, and it has been painful having stocks denominated in euro unless they were dollar earners. But this does present an opportunity because likely the eurozone will go into some sort of pullback as energy becomes scarce, particularly this winter, natural gas in particular. But out of that is the recovery, especially given the amount of spending that the eurozone has in mind in order to revitalize their economies. And um, you know, work for the U.S. It's likely to work for the eurozone. So there are stocks that companies now buying back large portions of their outstanding market cap that's really interesting you can if they're that confident in the future and they know a whole lot more about it than we do in terms of their own companies there are a number of european banks unicredit in italy is one example not only are they buying back 14% of their stock they have a 6% dividend yield that's like 20% payout yield that's fantastic on on 40% of tangible book value. You may think that sounds terrifying. Who wants to be in Italy right now? There's political <laughs> uncertainty. But that's exactly when you want to buy. Because the next stage, you get back to 60 or 70% of tangible book, and you've doubled your money. And I guess I would contrast that. Like, the, you might be seeing great opportunities in, in specific companies. Um, but when we look at Europe overall, from, from our perspective, we are still bearish. Now, there might be a timing element, Sarah, between what you're saying and I'm saying. But um, agree that they're doing some fiscal stimulus. I think with the potential for them to lose more energy supply in the winter, it will be important to see if the governments take those losses off the companies and onto the government balance sheets, just like we saw the U.S. do for some U.S. companies during COVID. Will Europe do that as well? That would certainly be a positive for European equities if that move yeah. happens. In the absence of that, I do think you have to reckon with the ECB tightening in what is an incredibly challenging environment. So the European Central Bank slowing growth even worse than what we're seeing in the United States so far and very high, multi-decade high inflation. So they're stuck yeah. between a rock and a hard place. And you mentioned Italy. I, you know, look, Italy tends to go through governments roughly every 18 months, uh, going back to World War II. So this is not that unusual. However, Italy right now desperately needs these fiscal transfers from the European Union. And if this, this government, which isn't as cohesive today, is unable to pass reforms, the fiscal tap gets turned off. And if the fiscal tap gets turned off while the ECB is tightening, I think European equities are really going to struggle. Thank you so very much to Rebecca Patterson of Bridgewater and Sarah Ketter of Causeway Capital. Coming up, we have a Supreme Court taking a different direction on a wide range of issues. But what could it mean for the markets? And for that matter, deals. We ask Ken Jacobs of Lazard Frere. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. The Supreme Court is rocking the boat for us all. In an historic term, the court managed to turn the heat up on just about everything it touched, from its overturning Roe versus Wade. The health and life of women in this nation 
are now at risk. It will save the lives of millions of children, and it will give families hope. To its permitting concealed weapons. Unquestionably the biggest Second Amendment ruling in more than a decade from this court. To its telling the EPA to back off on regulating power plants. The U.S. Supreme Court has restricted the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to curb greenhouse gases from power plants. The debate continues on the wisdom of all these decisions, but taken together, they raise important questions for business and the markets. Questions about how the rule of law that underpins our entire system will work under this new court. With some, like Senator Portman of Ohio, saying it's just an appropriate reminder that the power ultimately remains with the Congress, not the regulators. And that's what the Supreme Court was, was essentially saying, is that, wait a minute, we've got to be sure that the Congress, which is the representative of the people, uh, you know, has, has the final say. While critics like Larry Tribe say the court has abandoned principle in favor of personality. It strikes me as profoundly unprincipled because the Supreme Court has long said that decisions of great durability should not be overruled in the absence of some extraordinary change other than the mere personnel of the court. And to tell us whether there might really be a connection between what the Supreme Court is doing on the one hand and the business world on the other, we welcome a true leader in the business world. He is the chairman and CEO of Lazard Ferrer. He is Ken Jacobs. Ken, great to have you back on Thank you, David. Wall Street Week. Great to have you. to be here. So we tend to think of things like abortion and social issues in the Supreme Court and even some of the regulatory issues as more in the zone of politics or even political philosophy. Can they affect the business world as well? Yes. So when you step back and you think about the United States, U.S. has a handful of really true competitive advantages. One is um, rule of law, uh, a second is uh, demographics, uh, and a third is uh, one market. And by one market, we're, we're a market of 300, 350 million people with essentially one set of rules. So when a company goes to do business in the United States, by and large, it's, it's one set of rules for the whole country. And what the Supreme Court is doing is, is essentially saying, look, uh, the administrative state has become unwieldy. Uh, it's taken on too much responsibility. Uh, Congress really should do a better job of writing laws more specifically. And we're going to start to whittle back some of the things that the administrative is doing. Well, on, on paper, that sounds great. I mean, Perhaps there'll be less regulation, maybe the laws will be clearer, better written. But the reality is Congress is rife with polarization. It's difficult to get anything done without a supermajority. So the reality is that there's a vacuum. And so we're going from a, from a, from a place where we have a clear sense, we may not like all the regulation, but we have a clear sense of the rules, to a place where the rules are uncertain. And increasingly, the states are stepping in and making decisions on many of these rules. And what's ending up happening is, is we're going to end up with uh, multiple rules with multiple states, and candidly, probably written by, uh, by groups or people that aren't as competent as exists in Congress. And so that's worrisome. Take us into your business specifically. You've got a very large advisory business. You've also mm -hmm. got a big asset management business. How do those challenges with perhaps uh, a very diffuse set of rules and regulations, mm -hmm. laws, how could it potentially affect your well, business? Take asset management as an example. That's probably the easier one of the two to, to see the impact. So you have a state that essentially says, look, we don't want to hire an asset manager that is worried about climate. And so they will restrict 
uh, the ability of a uh, state pension fund to invest in that manager. Another state may say, you know what, we will only invest in managers that uh, take into account climate. Now, if it's a small state with very little population and very little um, assets under management in their state pension funds, maybe it doesn't matter that much. But when we start having big states dueling on this, it's a real problem. Well, we're starting to see it. Uh, of like course I say this in places like Texas and Florida and California and New yep. York, just to pick four, uh -huh. that seem to have different attitudes toward these things. Are you seeing it affect your business so far, or is this more on the horizon? It's, I would say it's on the horizon, but it's worrisome. And you, you sort of think about it, you have an industry like insurance, which has 50 different regulators in 50 different states. That's a complex industry, but that's a real exception in the U.S. economy. Most of the U.S. economy is dominated by companies or, or driven by companies that are able to operate in all 50 states without a concern. And this is something that I think really runs the risk of um, upsetting one of the true competitive advantages of the United States. Ken, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. That is Ken Jacobs. He is the chairman and CEO of Lazard Ferrer. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. 
making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We welcome once again our very special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, a lot happened this week. But let's start at the end of the week with what you told us last week was the most important indicator that we should be looking at in the economy, and that is the Employment Cost Index. It came in. It came in above survey. David, we, we weren't sure what was going to be happening with uh, wage inflation. We hoped that the indications in some of the monthly surveys that earnings growth was slowing and that that might slow the whole inflation process would materialize, that didn't happen. Looks like inflation is running at a pretty stable rate. It's still two and a half points at least above where it was before this whole episode uh, started. Uh, it depends on just how you look at the figures, but really no evidence of a significant decline. If you look at the private sector and you take out benefits, then it's uh, going up a bit. If you look at the 12-month figure, it's going up a bit. Those may be the wrong things uh, to do, so it may be better to look at the overall figure. But I think it's showing what I've been saying for quite some time now, which is that we are an ingrained moderate to high inflation uh, economy. Nothing like 9% inflation is built in, but inflation above four looks to be pretty securely built in. And if productivity growth doesn't accelerate, it could be uh, worse than that uh, quite easily. So I'm pretty uncomfortable with uh, the current uh, situation. And I think it just points to uh, the difficulties that the Fed uh, is facing going forward and confirms the broad diagnosis that we have an overheated economy that's not going to fix itself. And therefore, we're not likely to get out of this uh, excess inflation situation without having a recession. So, so, Larry, you have been steadfast on this program and elsewhere uh, on your views about inflation. And yet there's something of a debate going on right now behind, between, on the one hand, the markets and on the other hand, economists, with the markets sort of saying, OK, the Fed will hike for a while and then they'll start backing off next year and actually we'll have some reductions in 2023. But the economists say, boy, the economy doesn't look that way. We're going to have to keep going and keep it pretty high. What do you do when you have that kind of debate? Yeah, we'll see what judgment the Fed's make makes. Uh, the challenge they're going to have, and it's a agonizing challenge, and it's why it would be better if we weren't in the kind of configuration we were in, and it would be better if we had not overstimulated uh, the economy last year, is that on the one hand, I think you are likely to see a significant slowdown in growth. You are likely to see recessionary forces develop over the next year. And on the other hand, it's going to take a lot to get the inflation out of the system. The danger, David, is that they don't uh, persevere strongly enough in restrictive policy, 
And that's what gets you a stagflation situation where growth slows and you don't beat the inflation out of the system. It's like if you don't complete your course of antibiotics and then your illness comes back and the drugs are bacteria resistant. On the other hand, I, I don't think we can deny that if they do what's necessary to contain uh, inflation, then it's not going to be a happy economic situation uh, over uh, some over some interval. Secretary Yellen said yesterday that she held out the prospect of uh, getting out of this without unemployment uh, going above uh, five. I've got enormous respect for her as an economist, but I have to say that statement uh, greatly surprised me. It didn't surprise me as much as the Fed saying we were going to get out of this with 4.1 percent unemployment. But I don't see any basis for thinking that either of those statements is a reasonable uh, prediction, given what we know. What do you economists do when you put together these neutral rates? Look, I think Jay Powell said things that, to be blunt, were analytically indefensible. He claimed twice in his press conference that the Fed was now at the neutral uh, interest rate, calling it two and a half. It's elementary that the level of the neutral interest rate depends upon the inflation rate. We've got on the most quoted measure, a 9.1% inflation measure. If you extrapolate it off core or something, it's four or five uh, percent uh, inflation. There is no conceivable way that a two and a half percent interest rate in an economy inflating like this is anywhere near neutral. And if you think it is neutral, you are misjudging the posture of policy in a fundamental way. So I was very sorry. Uh, to hear him uh, say that and, frankly, surprised. He said back in 2018 that the neutral interest rate, that the Fed was approaching the neutral interest rate at a time when uh, the inflation rate was 1.9%. How he could be saying the same thing uh, today when the inflation rate is where it is is inexplicable. Uh, to me, and it's the same kind of, to be blunt, wishful thinking that got us into the problems we have now. So, Larry, in the meantime, we have uh, some legislation coming out of uh, Capitol Hill, something perhaps we didn't even expect. We had the CHIPS Act, but now we have this proposed Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, last week on this program, you sent a powerful message to people who were saying increasing taxes actually might be inflationary. You said that's really not true at all. Uh, I suspect one of the people you were communicating with may have been Joe Manchin through Wall Street Week. I don't want to ask you about what you've said specifically Joe mentioned, but give us your reaction to what the proposal is now that's come up with respect to increasing taxes, yes, paying for it, but also addressing climate. I was glad to see the bill. I think it's going to reduce the rate of inflation because it's going to reduce deficits in demand over time. 
because it's going to use the federal government's power to negotiate lower prices for pharmaceuticals and because it's going to increase uh, supply of uh, energy. So demand, supply, pricing power, all working to reduce inflation. I think it's going to help the environment. Uh, because of the climate change measures. I think it's going to help fairness uh, in our country because of the expansions in uh, health care availability. I think it's going to help fairness in our country by closing uh, some very important tax loopholes that allow very profitable companies to avoid paying uh, any uh, any taxes. Thank you so much. That's our special contributor, Larry Summers, here on Wall Street Week. Of course, for, he's from Harvard University. Finally, one more thought. It's the economy, stupid. But which economy? There's no end of worrying and complaining about the U.S. economy these days from too much inflation. We certainly see peak inflation coming sometime in the second half to too high a risk of recession. I think there are many reasons why we're going to have a severe recession and a severe debt and financial crisis. To supply chains that just won't cooperate. Fix the supply chain. Uh, these are all things that will be beneficial to the country writ large. But through it all, the one thing the United States does not seem to lack is jobs. Just about twice as many jobs as we have people to fill them. You are still seeing jobs added at pretty substantial pace. And that robust demand for labor may just be the one thing that keeps the wolf of recession from our collective door. You got some up and you got some down. You got the job market very strong. And yet at the same time, you've got GDP growth stalling out. And so the Fed's got to figure out how hard to step on the brake. So as we all continue to worry and complain about the U.S economy, and as the markets continue to be buffeted by all that worrying and complaining. You've got so many different cross currents that are going on and so many different forces acting on the market that you have these little mini moments. Take a moment to consider the plight of China right now. Yes, China, that economic miracle, now facing slowing growth and a deeply troubled property market. Unfortunately, the private sector is what's collapsing. As far as the eye can see, uh, that China is going to take a, a while to recover. And COVID shutdowns that have wreaked havoc with companies like Philips needing inputs for overseas markets. The second quarter uh, was impacted by a lot of headwinds. We had China lockdown, supply issues, uh, and rising inflation. And Elon Musk's Tesla not getting what it needs for the China market. Q2 was a unique quarter for Tesla due to a prolonged shutdown of our Shanghai factory. The past few years have, have been uh, quite a few force majeures, and uh, it's, been, it's been kind of supply chain hell for several years. Now you can add to China's woes an oversupply of young college graduates. It has 10 times the number of college graduates that it had only 10 years ago. And way too many of them cannot find jobs, with almost 20% of young people unemployed, twice the rate in the United States. So as those of us in the United States complain about too few workers, our Chinese counterparts complain about too many. But in the end, whichever version of labor issues you have, it does come back to James Carville 30 years ago. It's the economy, stupid. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.